Jason Marin, and with me is my co-host, Miss Carrie Wood. Hello. Welcome, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Now, Carrie and I have a long and checkered past, uh, going back to the new 42nd Street Studios That's these right. 12 years ago. Yeah, it's hard to believe it's been that long. And uh, I'm glad to finally have you for one of these. Absolutely. Where can people find you online? My website is Carrie Wood, C-A-R-R-I-E-W-O-O-D-L-D.com. Thank you. No problem. All right. Our guest this time is the one and only Mike Baldessari. <laughs> Here's 20 bucks. Thank you for joining us, Mike. Um, you were one of the people that I wanted to interview when I started thinking about this project originally, and you were really, really supportive. It was like two years ago when we first spoke about it. I appreciate that. Anybody out there that doesn't know who Mike is, he's lit just about everything you can light. He's lit concert tours, concerts on television, concerts in films, films without concerts in them. Broadway musicals, Broadway touring, shows on television, Saturday Night Live, large-scale events, and sort of amalgamations of all of the above. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Well, first off, thank you very much for having me. I thought this was a super great idea when you first said something. I'm very interested in hearing what a lot of other people have to say. You know, as professionals, as you know, you and I work together quite often, but I might only see you three or four times a year. Um, there's a lot of other people that you've interviewed that I've either never met or just, a, you know, a passing acquaintance. So it's, I think it's great to hear other people's perspective. Uh, so, Mike, where do you want to start? <laughs> Fire away. Uh, well, you, like, as you said, we've worked together a couple times, and you know, I've programmed a couple things for you. But sort of mm-hmm. the most recent and sort of one of the most high profile was a concert for World AIDS Day that took place in Times Square with Chris Martin and Bruce Springsteen and three members of U2 and Kanye West and Carrie Underwood. Right. So, why don't we start there? That was called A Red Thank You, a.k.a. hashtag One Step for Red. Right. It was a thank you to New York, a thank you to America. It was put on by the charity Red, uh, which Bono was one of the founders of. And for anybody who doesn't know anything about it, it, it's a pretty amazing charity. And without going into too many specifics, they have literally kept millions of people alive in Africa. Basically, they have pestered drug companies and others to get the cost of medication down to about 40 cents a day. Some of the things I learned on it were if you contracted HIV a couple of years ago in in a place like New York or Paris or London, for about $25,000 a year, they could keep you alive and keep it from becoming full-blown AIDS. But if you were in Africa, that was basically a death sentence. And so now by getting the cost down, they have literally been able to keep, like I said, millions of people alive at 40 cents a day. And I know that they are very close to having the first generation of children born AIDS-free. And that impacts everybody. That, that's not just something off, way off in, in Africa. The other thing about it that was significant, I felt like to me, was that we were doing it in Times Square, which is the epicenter of Broadway. And the Broadway community paid a very, very heavy price for the AIDS epidemic. I was just starting out at the time, and it was was shocking. Um, First off, I would say probably about 85% of the men at the time that I worked with were were probably gay. But what was shocking is you would be working with somebody one week, and then the next week they would just be gone, just gone. And uh, or then you would or you would just hear somebody was sick and then they were gone a short time later. And it was absolutely devastating. And when I think of the, uh, the, the great artists and stuff like that that we lost, these people paid the price. And I wrote an email to the woman who's the head of Red and I said something along the lines of these people were the predecessors. And if it wasn't for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS and the Broadway community who still to this day that's like the singular cause of Broadway, that and the Women's Health Initiative. Every year, Broadway raises millions of dollars for it and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think that it wouldn't be 40 cents a day had it not been for the Broadway community, for the New York community, and for the United States being behind all the research. So um, the other thing that was crazy about that particular one was it was this big Secret, you know, one-off right? concert. And it's top secret. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, 
I had to go to the vendors. I had to go to Jason and some of the other people that were working on it. And I had to say, you know, listen, this is very important to be under wraps. I went to a meeting with the city. You know, of course, their greatest fear is giant crowds. And I think the worst thing is advertising a giant crowd is going to be there. They were concerned about, okay, you're going to say U2 is going to play. And they were concerned about people flying in and, and all this kind of stuff. If you're going to announce a date, but also they're concerned about terrorism. We live in a target. There's, there's no two ways about it. And to have that kind of event, secrecy was of the utmost importance. So all the vendors kind of had to be told, you have to keep this under wraps. None, it wasn't mentioned anywhere on any of the paperwork what it was. We, we called it uh, Red, Operation Red Square. Red Square. Yeah. So that's what was on all the paperwork and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, so that was a big deal. And now how did you get involved? Willie Williams, U2's creative director and show designer, he contacted me last summer and said, our little friends from Dublin are going to probably do something for World AIDS Day, and uh, would you like to be a part of it? And so, of course, I said yes. Now, I had met Willie back in 1985 on the very first tour that U2 did playing arenas. I used to go and while I was in college, and I would go watch load-ins and that kind of stuff, and inevitably I would work my way over to the lighting board and want to uh, ask people questions and stuff. So Willie was one of the people I met. They had just played the Garden. It was like 1985 or something. It was their first big tour. And the great thing was that the, the guy who came with me from school took a picture of Willie was operating a console and I was sitting to the side. So I took that out and showed Willie and we had a really good laugh about it. So, so anyway, w Willie's an, one of the most amazing designers in our business. About a year ago, I lit U2 for the premiere of The Tonight Show at Top of the Rock at Rockefeller Center. And that came out really great. They were very happy. Uh, Top of the Rock is 70 floors up, but it's outside. And we lit this in February. February. And, and it's not very big. It's really no, tiny. it's really not. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, it was two arch trusses that, you know, I think the, the whole platform up there is like 19 feet wide and maybe it's 30 feet long. Um, and then one of the other problems is the last elevator to get to the roof is a, a four person elevator. So everything had to go up through this tiny elevator. Um, so it took, you know, it was a very long load in, it was an overnight load in, because also top of the rock, we couldn't close that down. So the load in had to happen, you know, starting at midnight and had to be finished uh, at 8 a.m. Uh, and then they just cordoned off one part of the roof, but the, the thing was open all day. Yeah, uh, FYI, there's a lot, a lot of spaces in New York that are like that. I mean, you know, you have Gallows Island and yeah. uh, Grand Junction <laughs> Terminal, a lot of places that you can do an event in, but you have to find a way to leave, still leave it open to the public during the day. Yeah. And they just sort of don't care how much that costs you. Right. They know that it's public space. It's going to be open during the day. Yeah. And, and the other part for me, like most typical New Yorkers, you know, I've never been to the top of the Empire State Building or anything like that. And when somebody said, hey, are you available? You want to do this? And I said, sure. And I thought Top of the Rock was like the Rainbow Room or something. You know, and we go up there for the survey. And well, I was that's like, not easy to get up to either. But <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I was like, uh, nobody said this was going to be outside. So <laughs> that, that was a... Um, I know I looked down at one point and you could see one of those things on the street and it was 20 at street level, but we were 70 floors up and it's, you know, in the middle of the night and it, the wind is howling. And I have to say, unbelievable get it done stagehands. The local one guys who, who put it up, I was all bundled up. I was one in and, out, in and out. Those guys were up there. They put every piece of truss up. They hung all the lights. They focused the lights. Uh, I have some great pictures of some guys on top of these arch trusses as the sun is coming up uh, over the East River. So anyway, that was how I got sort of back in touch with the U2 camp. Like I said, they were very happy about it. We actually got an Emmy nomination uh, oh, for it. Excellent. Yeah, which that, that was cool. It was great for The Tonight Show. We also ended up shooting it twice because there was a concern about weather. The show was premiering on Monday night. So we did a first pass on Sunday night just in case. So that if, if Monday got canceled, they had something to use in the show. Right. We shot it after dark. So uh, we then went down to the control room. We looked at it. It was great. It was the director, Willie, myself, the guys from the band. And they were very, very happy with what it looked like. And then Lauren Michael says, well, why don't you shoot it a little bit earlier so that you can see a little bit more of the city? It was a great idea. But, of course, now we were all lit for night. So it was a kind of bit of a scramble that now we wanted to do it again in real time on Monday, but a lot earlier. And then the other issue we had was there was a helicopter involved. 
I think it's the NBC helicopter. It was really cool. You know, it's not every day that you, you know, you rehearse with a helicopter. But it was like, you know, we could rehearse, but you couldn't really get it in the right time of day and all that sort of stuff. And then once it came time to go, that was it. And you only have the helicopter for a certain window, both because they probably use it for other stuff, but there's also, I know one of the times we were doing it, we had to wait for it to go back to New Jersey and refuel. It came out great, and I think that's a big reason why the show, uh, that particular episode, got nominated for, for an Emmy. I remember being blown away with how that looked. Yeah, really it, it was really cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, Fred Bach is a future yeah. guest on the podcast. Absolutely. So, you know, he'll be joining us uh, sometime soon. Yeah, I mean, Fre Fred, you know, it's like, this has been my whole career. I'm the guy in the middle of everything. I got to smooth it all over. There's these people don't aren't talking to these people. I somehow always end up in the middle. Or I'm the guy that, like, this has never quite been done before. Can you just walk in and make it go? And so Fred is the lighting designer for the tonight show so he had his hands completely full down there doing that and it was like you know i'm just lighting this little thing up on the roof but it had to coordinate with fred it had to coordinate with lots of other stuff i do that kind of thing a lot where i end up just sort of having a foot in a bunch of different worlds at the same time and being able to walk the fence and that's how you got connected to uh, right. a red thank you right with respect to, to a red thank you what were the specific challenges that went along with doing that event in times square and sort of what were the most critical things that you had to take care of um for anybody who hasn't seen it the other thing that was quite amazing about that event was like 10 days or so before the event bono had a very serious bike accident in central park and basically couldn't get out of bed couldn't do anything and I've heard various things from people in the camp that he was basically like, look, strap me to a board and just get me up there. You know, this is his charity. He really wanted to do it. But he was, wasn't able to really even move. So he has a very deep iPhone, and uh, I think people take his calls. And so he calls up Chris Martin and Bruce Springsteen, who both said yes and wanted to do it. And I asked the guys in U2, and I said, have you ever played a whole song without Bono? And they said, nope. We've had other guests, but we've never done a whole song without Bono. So this made it quite a unique event. And to have Bruce Springsteen sing those songs was, was really quite extraordinary. So um, when you asked me about other, other parts about the design and stuff, you know, Willie and I had a couple of meetings on site. We walked through Times Square. It was a big walkthrough with the city and stuff, but then he and I kind of walked through. And then it evolved over a bunch of Skype meetings and, and stuff like that. Um, I also spent a couple of evenings on my own in Times Square, just kind of in darkness. Interesting tidbit, there's no streetlights in Times Square. Oh, interesting. Y yeah, I mean, I, I, you never sense, would, no yeah, you would never yeah. notice it. But, you know, I was trying to figure out color temperatures and, and all that kind of stuff. And then the really big issue, obviously, was all of the screens. Now, we also, for part of the concert, had control over most of the screens in Times Square. But there's 70 screens now in Times Square, and they all give off different amounts of light. They're all very, very different. That was definitely a concern. And one of the things that I did was I insisted that they bring in a video engineer named Billy Steinberg, who I, this guy's just a genius. I could go on and on and on about, about Billy. But I had a bunch of conversations with him, and he had also just shot something the year before in Times Square. It's very tricky with that many screens because obviously the goal is you want to see the screens, some of which are very bright. But if, if you... Yes, if you, yes, some of them dim at night and some of them don't. Some of them don't, exactly. That was also very interesting. They're all screaming bright during the day. And then the other wild card was the one that's on the Marriott Marquis, which is as big as a football field. We didn't, I didn't know how bright that would be until really the day before. Yeah, I give them credit for figuring out that you know they should lower, they should dim that thing for when it's in the evenings. So that way you can still see it, but it's not. Yeah, it's not just it's not darts in your eye. Yeah. So the thing that we had to accomplish was that this you can read the screens that they're not just blown out white squares, and then that against the performers. So obviously you can bring the performers up bright enough to see against the screens, but you also had to be able to see the crowd. So finding the balance for those three things, we spent the better part of the couple of hours leading up to the show just getting that balance right. And I don't know what Billy does. It was one of those things he said, give me a minute, let me get in the computer here, come back to me in five minutes. And he had, I don't know what he did to the cameras, but he dialed it in that we could see the people in the audience, we could see the people on stage, and we could see what was going on on the screens. He's a magician. He, he, re he really is. 
So that was that was one of the, the biggest things. Um, what makes it different in terms of standard TV concerts or concert film was that, as you know, it was a one-off in every sense of the word. So it was the speed of the setup, absolutely no rehearsal, and then the complex nature, as I said, of the three things, having to be able to see all three things at once. But I have to say it was an amazing event, and I felt so privileged even just to go like, like to the rehearsal and hear Bruce Springsteen sing Where the Streets Have No Name, that you know the first time through was kind of tentative, and the second time he, you know, he really caught it, and by the third time he did it, it was a Bruce Springsteen song. And yeah. growing up in New Jersey, it's like seeing the Pope. So, <laughs> Well, uh, thanks for bringing me on to hang with you on that one. That was really, really special. Speaking of SNL and speaking of other things on television, uh, you've led digital shorts on SNL for years now, right. but you started lighting the show itself. Yeah, I did the, well, speaking of Fred Bach and stuff, so over there, Fred lights a Tonight Show, but because NBC was very busy in the last couple of weeks between the Tonight Show and the Super Bowl, NBC had the Super Bowl this year, so that sort of took one of the regular SNL people out of that, but then also they were doing the Tonight Show live after the Super Bowl in Arizona, and then that following week in LA. So Fred was totally hands full with all of that stuff. The people who light SNL week to week is uh, Phil Himes has been there really since day one. Phil's in his 90s now, quite extraordinary guy, really quite a character and really great to be around and, and to watch work. And then the two lighting directors who really do it week to week is Jeff Amaral and Rick McGinnis. So NBC's got their hands full. Basically, I was brought in to cover for a couple of weeks in the studio. It's a fascinating thing. Nothing else works like SNL. SNL is like the animals in Australia. You know, they broke off from the rest of the planet a long time ago. <laughs> they are highly evolved, but they are completely unique. Everything about it over there. I mean, one of the things that I noticed right off, it's a very gray crew, meaning that people are really happy to be there. Most of them are huge fans of the show, and most of them have been there for really, really long periods of time. So that place runs like a really well-oiled machine. And it's also, it's great to work in literally a laugh factory. Mm -hmm. right. you, you know, like that's comedy's number one and whatever it takes and that, well, I, that I, I, You know, I worked on a couple of the digital shorts with you mm -hmm. and it was oh, just, I didn't know that. It's, it's almost painful to, because it's so funny. And you just, you <laughs> yeah. kind of just want them to show everything that you just saw, like all three hours of it. Cause yeah. it's all, it's all so funny. I love the shorts. Yeah. Well, those have evolved in, in an amazing way. When I first started going there, first of all, I'll tell you real quick how I got there. I went through there with Neil Young in 1992. And when I got done, I, I had a great time. And I said to Phil Himes, hey, Phil, uh, if you ever need anybody, I live right across the river in Hoboken. I'd love to come. If you ever need anybody, you know, please just call me. So cut to like 10 years later, it's 2002. I get a phone call. Mike, it's Phil Himes. Phil, what's going on? What are you doing tomorrow? And I was like, uh, whatever you want me to be doing. And he said, well, you know, can you come in and all this kind of stuff? And I said, sure, I would love to. And I said, Phil, where did you get my number? He said, I had it in my wallet. I said, Phil, I think you need a new wallet. <laughs> so anyway, there's a lot of really great people there. But when I first started going there, a lot of it was um, like I would show up and say, here's your script. Here, you get this corner of this studio. It would never be 8H. It would always be 8G or something like that. Start lighting it. So it's like really quickly read the script, get a couple of lights together. There's no scenery yet. Then in comes a flat. You can do a little bit of lighting. Here comes a scenic artist. They painted. Uh, the paint is still wet. Here comes the actors, and they're shooting. And like that's how fast it would be. But it would literally be like a flat, and you had to make it look like something and all of that. Over time, they have become highly evolved. And the one that changed everything, this is just my opinion, I have no inside knowledge, but what changed things for, for the digital shorts and all that kind of stuff really was Dick in a Box. Because Dick in a Box went viral. And if you notice, on all of that stuff, NBC gets paid before you can watch it. There's yeah. commercials on the front end of it. So once that's done, and those things tend to go viral. So. The film units now, so that was that was part of the, the pre-tapes and all that kind of stuff evolved into the film unit. Now, there's always been some element from the very first show, even with Mr. Bill and all of that kind of stuff, there's always been some outside element like that. But now, these things have evolved into like single days of a feature. 
Like if you saw the one a couple weeks ago with Blake Shelton, whatever it was, the magic boot or whatever, that was unbelievable, all pulled off in one day. And that's like, it's like a day of a feature. So it went from this little thing of, hey, here's a couple of lights to now, you know, it's a single day of a feature. There's actually three film units now. So they've gotten more and more complicated. Um, and the stuff that, that you've worked with me on and, and things like that, the way that they happen is unbelievably, unbelievably fast, as you know. Um, well, I know. I, I kind of didn't believe that they really did everything in the, in the one week until I started getting involved with this. So I was like, wow, they really do figure it out on a Thursday and want to shoot it on the Friday. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. really it. Like, yeah, on, on a Thursday shorts. night sometimes. Right. Right. I mean, I, so there's, there's two parts to it. There's the, there's the show in the studio, and there's the film units. And those two things don't really talk. <laughs> and they really only merge on Saturday night. So here's how it works in the studio. So Monday the writers meet with the guest hosts and they start throwing ideas back and forth. By Tuesday, they're writing. Then by Tuesday night, I believe that's when um, they say, okay, let's go ahead with these bunch of sketches. So that starts Tuesday night, all day Wednesday, they're designing the sets and all of that kind of stuff. Then somebody from the lighting team goes to a read through Wednesday night, just to know what, what's coming down the pike. Then Thursday, show up at eight o'clock, there's some ground plans drawn. There's no scenery yet. Really, in the studio. Because there's been so, no time to make anything. Right. Now, it's all getting built, you know, at Stiegelbauer and stuff. So it's like tape out the floor. Here's your couple of sets that you're going to light and, and start pulling the lighting together before you have any scenery. Then they may try to rehearse a sketch on Thursday night. If there's no scenery, they just pull up these rehearsal flats. So that's what you're trying to light. You know, it's just these people in front of these rehearsal flats and they're starting some camera blocking and stuff like that. And the other part of Thursday is that's music. So a long period of Thursday is working on the music. Which is almost siloed all, all on its own as well, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but it requires a lot of the studio. You know, that's when they start the camera blocking and, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, and meanwhile, like every time you go away for a meal break, you come back and you hope there's a little more scenery to start working on. And then you come back on Friday, and on Friday, again, hopefully there's some more scenery, and you spend the morning lighting, getting everything together. But then they may come up and say, uh, there's another sketch being worked on, so there may be something later in the day. And like the week that was the State of the Union, that was a cold open, and there was this whiff of this other thing coming, and the other sketch that showed up was the one about the deflated footballs. And that one went viral. And it was like, it was really amazing to see that they make those kinds of decisions like that, where, you know, here's this thing that was going to be the cold open. We even did it for the dress rehearsal, which happens on Saturday. And between the dress and the air, they chuck that out and they put this other one in the spot. Wow. And that's the one that went viral. I mean, that's, that's the brilliance of it. So anyway, so, so Friday, like starts at 630 in the morning. And again, you hope when you show up that there's some more scenery and you just, just keep lighting, just keep lighting. They start trying to do some camera blocking. You're just trying to work on top of everyone else. Meanwhile, none of the scenery is painted yet. It's all maybe just base coated. So it's still hard to get a read on stuff. So you, may get, so you start at 6.30 in the morning, may go to midnight or something like that. Come back at 8, hopefully everything has been painted. The scenic artists there, USA 829 people, are incredible. It's like a master class every week in scenic painting. Sure. Um, yeah, that's what I mean. It's, it's a well-oiled machine. It works like nothing else. And there's just lots of really incredibly talented people over there in, in all the departments. And then on Saturday, you show up and, and their sconces start coming in and they're decorating all the sets and hopefully they're painted and you're making adjustments and you start to take look-sees by about one o'clock or so. And then I think it's the band starts coming in and once the band's there playing, now it's like now you're in a rush all the way right up to showtime. Again, stuff just keeps getting added, keeps getting changed. They do a dress rehearsal at 8 o'clock. That goes from 8 till 10, 10.30. And then they have a meeting. Lauren decides what's the order of the show, what gets cut, all of that sort of stuff. The dress rehearsal is actually harder to do than the real show because there's a lot more scenery. There's a lot more things that have to move. Very often, it'll just be one commercial break to separate. You'll be in the same place in the studio. And the only time to change over the set and change over what has changed is a commercial break. It's all about what's the funniest thing for the show, and nobody takes into consideration what's going on with that. So that's the show itself. And then when you go live at 1130, that's it. It's never been done. That's the one and only time it will ever be done in that order. 
on top of all of that is some time on Thursday to decide what they want to shoot for digital shorts for Friday. I mean, I've gotten a phone call. I've, I've called you, and it would be like Thursday, and I'd get a phone call like, um, what are you doing? Can you meet us at this hockey rink in an hour? Uh, we want to shoot this thing, Merrill Streep on ice, and we want to be on camera tomorrow afternoon at 5 o'clock or something like that. And so it's a mad scramble to get gear, to get crew, to get all that kind of stuff, and uh, somehow it happens. So, I mean, you've been on plenty of those. They can easily be 20-hour days. Um, I know when we did like the 100th digital short, that was like three days of reporting at 4 a.m. and finishing at 2 a.m. and really crazy stuff. Well, what was that? We shot it at some giant place in Brooklyn. You know, they just kind of pulled out all the stops. It was it was the second to last one. But it's really amazing. Some of the people that are there, the DP flies in every week from California. It was, gra <laughs> it was great for me because I really learned a lot of different styles. There's sort of television style. And then there's, well, there's the studio style, which is different. There's sort of lighting for television. But then with some of the film unit stuff, it really is lighting in a film style. And so those three things are all very different. Can, um, can you tell me a little, a little bit about that and what that difference is? Sure. Uh, well, in the studio, it's lit more like the way soap operas used to be lit. So things are lit. They tend to be um, the key light is like a three-quarter backlight because there's a lot of aspects about SNL that are sort of analog on purpose. One of them is they use booms for everything. All the audio is with booms. So that's the really big uh, dance. It's a real ballet between lighting and audio is because everything is done with booms, it's a completely different style of lighting. And I'll say the way that I learned it was by watching. I would go there when I was off doing my little sketch in 8G or something like that. On every break I had, I would go watch them light and go try to figure it out and I'd ask a lot of questions and stuff. But it's this sort of style of a lot of 2Ks that are three-quarter backlights and then the front is a lot of 2K zips, 2K soft lights. And when you have enough of them and you put the booms through them, you don't get boom shadows. And then you use a like a border, uh, a flag, to then get those soft lights as low, chopped off the back of the set as you can. Mm. That's the basis of all of it. And then there's a lot of other lighting around that. But all the other stuff, you have to take into account the booms on everything. So that's, that's the style in the studio. The film unit stuff, it could be anything from, you know, lighting with a green screen and enhancing the background plates with lighting. So that's more like a college exercise. You know, here's a picture of Central Park. Now reproduce that on the person who's sitting on the bench. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's, it's like a college project. We, we did one that was really good. It was a fake trailer for some movie, and it was all in Times Square. And we're doing it with a green screen. But to make it look like the people were in Times Square, uh, what I do is I vertically mounted some color forces, and then I used the red, the blue, and the amber, not the green, and did some random chases on the people. And that's, that's how I lit them. That and a little bit of like uh, fill light from the front. And it looked, it matched perfect. It looked really great. That's awesome. So that kind of stuff. That's really interesting. Uh... I, you know, I've read a lot about SNL and how it works more for the actors, and I actually, I knew someone who was on wardrobe there for a while, but I was always interested in the lighting side of it. And, I mean, like, yeah. I, I'm a guest there. Mm -hmm. I, I, again, I feel like that's most of what I am. I'm, I'm usually a guest somewhere. I'm just, I'm so flattered that they've ever even asked me to come back. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of great people with great work ethics. There's a lot of mix of styles. And again, you know, it's a laugh factory. How much better could that be? And when you walk in the door and you see all these people who have been there for 20, 30 years, they're doing something right. So it's an honor and a privilege just to be there. How often are you there? Some seasons it could be 10 times. Some seasons it might be five times. You know, it, just, it totally depends. What I do is I put it in my calendar. If I'm available, my wife always said to me, just say yes, because you never know if you're going to get a classic one. So I've always just said yes. If I'm home and I can make it work in the schedule, I've always done it. I drop whatever I'm doing and I go there and I do that. And we've gotten some good ones, right? I mean, you're a rat bastard, Charlie Brown. Oh my God. That Jason lit with me that was... is, is on the every year Christmas special now. Listen, my only regret with that was that there was so much stuff that was so funny that didn't make the show. You can't put it all in. Yeah. yeah. Right. 
But that's what they're brilliant at is, is that kind of editing. You see it and you just say, oh, more, more, more. But I've heard that Michael Nichols used to say, you have to kill the babies. Yeah, you, know? yeah, you kill your darlings. Yeah, man, they're great at that. To be able to make those decisions and chop that stuff down. And, and even on the digital shorts, they sometimes make edits between the dress rehearsal and air. They have people there who can do that kind of editing and stuff like that. And sometimes they'll say it's a little long or that joke didn't quite work and they'll fix it between dress and air. It's really amazing. So on the subject of television, this is something I've noticed, and I know we were talking about it the other day. It's If you look back at award shows that were shot 30 years ago, it, it's not like the technology has changed so drastically, lighting-wise, since right. then. They're still using spotlights and soft lights and all of that stuff. You know, you can say that, yes, every, everyone uses Sharpies now in their award shows, but that's really an effect. What happened? Why do these things look so much better now than they ever did before? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think the first thing is there's better lighting people out there. I think people have evolved and designers have evolved and it's gotten better. And there's a lot of really good people with great eyes. That's the first thing. The second thing that's changed is the cameras have gotten better. And all of those things have a ripple effect. So now the cameras have gotten better. That means more people can do it. There's not so much this dark science to it that there used to be. Many, many more people can get there, get the lighting looking good in front of a camera than there used to be. The other part of it is your screen at home is better than it used to be. You used to look at this stuff. You know, I think that that's part of the reason why people don't go to the movies as much is you used to go to the movies because that was the best screen you could see anything on. That was the most clarity. And now you can have it in your living room. That's true. I haven't thought about it that way. Well, I, yeah. I, think, that that's, I think that's a lot of it. The way that I think about lighting in the different fields is in the theater, you're lighting it organically. You're lighting it for your eye. That's organic. In television, it's electronic. You're lighting for the monitor. Doesn't matter what it looks like live in most cases. You're just lighting it for what's on the screen. In film, it's more chemical. Now, that, that's changed a little bit, but when I first started doing films, there's so many people who touch it after you've exposed the film. And I didn't know all of this. It's things that I learned. But it's so many things that the DP would work with the colorist and all of that kind of stuff. So I've always sort, sort of it as lighting sort of falls in those three things. It's either organic, electronic, or chemical. Oh, that makes sense. Since you mentioned film, what can you tell me about that? I mean, you know, you lit a little sh film a couple of years ago called Nine. That uh, was pretty cool. Which, oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God's right. Listen, I, I, I'll be like, I've done a bunch of films. I'm a guest in that world. And I'm flattered to be there. I can't believe they've asked me to be there. I want to do whatever I can to help the DP look good, sort of being one more, one more weapon in the arsenal as it is. But something like nine, that's really kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing, I have to say. There's not too many days in your life that you can wake up and say, I'm going to light Sophia Loren today. The women that were in that movie are unbelievable. And to work with Dion Beebe, who's Academy Award-winning director of photography, and to work with Rob Marshall. I've been fortunate enough to work with him a couple of times. Every day you're in the building with Rob Marshall is a great day. I'm not just saying that. You can see any of these giant actors or actresses. They all love him. He creates an incredible environment to work in. It's a, like I said, it's an honor and a privilege to be there. And he, he's a great guy. John DeLuca, his partner, is a great guy. They really work very, very hard to create a loving environment for the artist to do their best in. And I love working with somebody like that who, you know, I feel like Rob's like, how can we make all these women even more beautiful? He really just comes from this wanting everybody to be beautiful, wanting it to be perfect. He has a great way of working with actors. It's pretty amazing. I mean, he, he called me out of the blue. And sort of once he said it was Rob Marshall, I was like, whatever it is, the answer is yes. You know, I had worked with him on Cabaret, on Broadway, and a show at Encores, and then he wanted me to meet with Dion, and we got together, and uh, Dion Beebe is, is a completely amazing director of photography. He's done a, a lot of great movies. Look, look him up on IMDb, but he was the guy who shot Chicago. He won an Academy Award for Memoirs of a Geisha, and he just did Into the Woods with Rob. So, like, all the things. He's done, <laughs> he's done all the things that yeah. make us go, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a great guy. I mean, um, I had a great time working with him. We've remained friends. Usually every other time or so I'm in L.A., we get together for lunch or something like that. 
Uh, he's a really great artist uh, to, to work with. So how does that work? You know, I know that the, the director of photography has their own set of things that they need to do. Right. And how do you fold into that? Well, I, I think first and foremost, I, I'm in service to the DP. And I'm there to be one more tool in the shed, I guess. One, one more part of his machine to get the best picture possible. As gorgeous as the lighting is on 9, there's no way I can take credit for all of it. Not even close. Everything that we did, we had this platform, and it was me, Dion, and Rob. And the three of us sat there. We wrote all the cues together. We, we did everything together. I called the channels and stuff, but I was with them, and they would say, what about this, what about that, and sort of in service to, to what they requested. So that was a complete collaboration from top to bottom. You know, I worked out all the mechanics of it and all of that kind of stuff. Having worked with Rob, and he's a musical theater person, he brings that element to it, which, which doesn't ex really exist in the film world. He's such a brilliant choreographer and, and his partner, John, as well. So I think that that's what I brought to it, theatrical timing and, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, and then ultimately, because he's a musical person, you do all these great cues and stuff, and then you see it on screen, and he puts all the cuts in the same place you put all the cues. You know, it's musical. Working well, that's, that's definitely been a problem for me doing, you know, music on television. There's people who feel like, well, then I have to hold the cue until, until we've already cut. You know, I, yeah. I understand why they feel that way. It's, well, th then you don't see the change, and you don't know why it looks different in between these two different shots. Right. right. Well, one of the things, too, when we went into it with Rob was I, I also have become very good friends with the music director, a music supervisor. Uh, his name is Matt Sullivan, and he's done just, he's the guy to go to. And I asked them to... I mean, you know the way films work is the first thing they do is they record all the music. So Nicole Kidman shows up, and they send her off to Abbey Road, and she's there, and she records her number. And then they file everyone else in that same way. So all of that, the music exists before you go into it. And then I would ask Matt to please put time code on it. And when we were working with Rob, I said to him, look, it might take a little bit extra time for us to tag all this... Time code now is just everywhere, but this is a couple of years ago. It wasn't as prevalent. And I said, it's going to take us a little bit longer when we're first putting it together, but it will be worth it because now all you have to do is say playback. Lighting's never going to screw it up. It's going to be the same every time. And if you cut, if you take <laughs> different cuts or you cut even in the middle of a fade from different takes, it will match perfectly. And sort of once he saw that and he saw how repeatable it was, then we really kind of went to town. And we ended up with something that was completely uncallable at the end of the day because we used the time code and we could put cues to land exactly where we wanted them to. And I don't think I'd be even here today <laughs> if it wasn't for time code because I think I would have died on that one. <laughs> you know, there was so much pressure. You know, when you have that many people... And we were doing, like, the opening sequence and stuff. There's, like, all right, you have Nicole Kidman and Penelope Cruz and Dame Judi Dench and Kate Hudson and Sophia Loren and and, Miss, and Daniel Day-Lewis all on the set, plus 150 crew people. You don't want to be the guy who screws up the take. So this way, it, it could be the same. And the other real big advantage when you're doing things with lots of cues is a couple of advantages. One of them is I can get my head out of the book. Yeah. I call the number originally. And I'll call, as we've done in many other productions, I'll call it the first time. But once I can get my head out of the book, now I can make more of a contribution as a designer. Now I'm bringing my eyes to stuff. I'm able to see it, and I'm able to see how it works all together as opposed to just worrying about calling the next cue. It really becomes a thing when you have a cue every few seconds. And if you're not paying attention to the list, you're going to lose your place. Right. And Rob's the first one to know that in the room, and he'll rightfully call you out on it. But the other part of it also, in a case like nine, where we had a lot of different kind of instruments we were using, a lot of different fixtures. So getting a 20K beam projector to fade out at the exact same time as a VL3000 is impossible to have them in the same queue. So what we would end up doing, I mean, think about that. A 20K beam projector, the filament is like a piece of metal the size of your fist. Yeah, it's out, and it's still fading down for the next 10 seconds. Yes. Exactly. So, so to back time all of that, we'd put them in their own queues, and, and we would do all of this crazy stuff that it, it essentially, at the end of the day, made it uncallable. But because it was all on time code, we didn't have to worry about it. 
you know, you mentioned the, like the 20K beam projectors. Uh, there's a lot of really, really bold statements lighting-wise in that film. You know, there are these cases where there's a... You know, yes, people use lighting as scenery in a lot of cases, but not like in Nine, because it was things right. like, you know, a single 20K beam in the center of the frame. Right. And that's a little tougher than, well, we have 12 lights that are all doing an arc behind the band. How did you plan those things? How did they get done so they were as perfect as they were in the film? I would say some of them were very specific and pre-planned. Other ones were found out during tech. And again, it's really, it's having a great collaborator like Dion Beebe, who says, you know what, this really needs a thing and a thing and a thing. And there's the gaffer and they're hanging it and, and, it, and it happens. That what was really smart that Rob did, again, being from the theater, he does, everything he does is smart. Well, a couple things. One was they built the entire set. Now the set on nine of all the musical numbers that I lit, that was all done at Shepperton outside London on the biggest stage. It's the biggest stage in the UK next to the 007 stage. The set was the size of a football field. Um, that's completely not an exaggeration. But what he did was they also had a second identical set built in the studio next door. So they rehearsed everything with every cheeseborough and piece of pipe and plank in the exact same place it was as it was going to be when we were shooting it. So they rehearsed everything and they did it just like a Broadway show. They rehearsed all summer. Lead actresses would fly in and fly out. And sometimes we would have like in the middle of the summer, everybody would show up at Shepperton for a couple of days. They would go through all the numbers while we had all the stars there and all that stuff. And then they would go off and then they would keep rehearsing. So that was a big part of it. They really knew what they were doing. The other part, again, that was so smart on Rob's part was he insisted that we have tech. Movie people are like tech. What is tech? What's that? <laughs> yeah, we show up and shoot it. What are you talking about? But we teched everything exactly like a Broadway show. So all of the musical numbers, depending on how complicated they were, everything shot for at least two days. <laughs> Even the simplest one, we, there was two shooting days for a musical number. And then if it was a very complicated number like the opening, I think we shot that over the course of like three and a half days, but we teched it for two days. And even on the smaller numbers, we teched them for a full day. That alone made all the difference. And, you know, I've gotten many phone calls since nine. People ask me to do some lighting on their movie, and they'll say, we want it to look like nine. I say, well, you got to put that in the schedule. You know, there's no, there's no like, hyper magic. It's hard work. There's no, like, oh, here's, here's how we did it. This is the secret. There's no secret. It was hard work. Nine was shot on film, right? Not yeah. digital. Yep. And you know, I feel like people starting to work on camera now, they could go years without ever working on film. Yeah. What do they need to know? If you're going to do film? Yeah. First off, it'll scare the crap out of you <laughs> when you see the dailies. Um, and, and that's the thing I was talking about earlier about on film, it's a chemical process. There's a lot of people who touch it after you do. So you need to be really, really in sync with a director of photography because there's only so many things that they can do chemically afterward. You know, the way I've always thought about it is, uh, first off, great lighting is great lighting. It doesn't matter. But if you don't make it that the DP can capture it, who cares? It will never matter. You can have the greatest lighting in the world. If you don't adapt it so the DP can capture it, it's gone. Basically, I, I will say that Dion was very much, and I had done some other stuff, and I've done other things on film since then, but he was very much like, because the first time I went to the dailies, I was like, holy crap, what, what is that? And he was like, no, calm down. He knew what was going on. He could make corrections based on his knowledge and stuff. But I would say that that's the thing you have to know, is you have to be really in very close connective tissue with the DP. So we would look at things and I would say, well, what about that? What about that? He said, don't worry about that. I'll fix that when it gets into post. And like, I remember that the ambers looked very green and he said, don't, don't sweat that. Cause it was a lot of gold finishes and stuff like that. He said, don't no. He said, don't worry about that. Um, that's just because they do do a quick turnaround or whatever it was on the dailies. And, and you know, he's, that guy is a master and he works, he works the same way he works with me. He works with the colorist. So, I'll admit it was scary the first time I saw it, for sure. And again, you have these these people on the set. It's not, you know, you're not going to get yeah. them back. And and but also again, brilliant Rob, that any number we did, we would shoot it for two days. So 
Um, if we were doing Penelope Cruz's number, it was, it was this all pink number, then, uh, you know, we all were back in, or it was me and Rob and Dion and a few select other people, and we would go to this tiny little screening room before everybody else and look at it. And so we could make adjustments if we had to, and then have that whole day to shoot. Like, just go back the next day, we're going to repair, you know, we're going to drop different color in these things, we're going to drop some flags in these things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know that it was all that extensive. It would be just more like, you know, that number need, that needs a little bit more lift there and a little bit more there. And Rob is like a laser beam on lighting. I mean, he he knows what he's looking at. Dion does as well. Um, I felt like every day I was on that, that film, it was like running a marathon, you know, with those two guys. I'm still flattered to this day that they asked me to be part of it. And that process of refining, is that more Rob or is that pretty standard? Is it just his way of working or...? There's nobody else like Rob Marshall. Yeah. I mean, other people have different different ways to do it. Some of the other films I've done, it's a completely different process. Well, not, so, not to worry, theater fans. We're going to come back to Cabaret, but <laughs> you're right. Uh, some of the other films you've done, including a very, very different film, Rock of Ages. Right. Different in almost every way. Yep. But both films had musical numbers in them. Yeah. And so what's the commonality there and what's the difference? Well, what was very different on Rock of Ages, first off, I'm a complete student of 80s hair metal. I became a lighting designer because I wanted to light that music. When I got out of school, it's what I wanted to light. And when I met with Adam Shankman, who I had worked with on another film, but Adam Shankman was the director, I said, Adam, I've already lit all these songs in my head a hundred times, so I'm doing this. <laughs> and um, it was... Uh, uh, it, it was a, it was a lot of fun, but completely different. Completely could not be more different than Nine. The, the thing about Nine was it was much more like much more like a Broadway show where the, the lighting supports the dancing and, and all that stuff in a in a very theatrical way. Rob could have could have taken Nine and with probably about nine or ten days put it on the Broadway stage. It was very similar. Same thing when he did Chicago. You could have lifted that up and within a little short amount of time put it on, on Broadway. Rock of Ages was nothing like that. It was meant to be concerts. It was, it was just completely different. And the lighting was meant to be, it wasn't the same kind of, you know, let's make the girls look beautiful and all of that stuff. It was much more rock and roll and it had to be that. There was two jumping off points for me doing that movie. Um, the first one was, it has to be the way you remember it, not the way it really was, because the way you, your memories are way cooler than it really was. That's so smart. But I think it's really true. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like what you remember things being is way cooler than if you could go back and recreate every little bit of it. Bunch of park you know? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other one was a, uh, an 80s quote that I remembered from David Lee Roth when he was talking about Van Halen show at the time was that was designed by um, Pete Angelis, who went on to manage David Lee Roth. Uh, he was talking about Van Halen's stage show that had a thousand parkans in it. That's a lot of parkans. And he said, hey man, we're carrying around a million watts of light and we're doing this just like it's high school. It's all about who has the loudest stereo and the biggest back tires. <laughs> and so that, that was great. sort of my two jumping off points for that film. <laughs> But the other part of it also was that it had to look like the era. Yeah, it's, it seemed like there was a real attempt to do period-appropriate lighting. Like, this is Thank what you. it would have looked like back then. Like, the Whiskey-A-Go-Go -Go wouldn't right. have had a full rig of moving lights. Right. It would have had maybe a couple. Because right. well, they were like the coolest club on Sunset, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, like, when we did the Bourbon Room, there was actually lots and lots of moving <coughs> lights. But... On camera, I only let a very few ever move until it was Tom Cruise doing Pour Some Sugar on Me. And then sort of the backstory, I always have a backstory for the lighting guy. And the backstory was, well, he's the biggest dude there is, so he's got the best lighting guy in the world with him. And they are purposely trying to pack 10 pounds of shit into a five-pound bag. Like, that's their whole look. That's the excess of the 80s. So like he brought his floor package along exactly. on that show. And exactly. I mean, we added lots and lots of stuff that was purposely just, just for those numbers that were Tom. He had these gun tattoos on his stomach pointing right to his penis. And so... Because of course uh, he did. Of course he did. Right. right. So um, I sort of saw that, and I had wanted to add 
little like MR16s into the set as sort of doing a stylized audience blinder thing. And I saw those and I was like, oh, we're going to get silver MR16s. And we got a couple of hundred of them. So they look like bullets. Mm, okay. and, and I showed it to Tom and he just thought that was like the coolest thing. But going back to how did we do sort of that effect, a couple of things I did. One of them was the ubiquitous lighting instrument from then is the silver par can with the octagonal gel frames. So I put these six lamp bars into every shot on purpose. So uh, even though you wouldn't have necessarily done it back then, I, I just had these six lamp bars that were low light, but they were really in every shot. And scenery. Then, yeah, as scenery. Yeah. And then also whenever they were decorating set decor for anything that was backstage at the bourbon room, I made sure that they had a couple of six lamp bars. And so you saw that in all the shots. Now in the overheads, I had a lot of, they were just source for pars with scrollers, but on the scrollers, I put octagonal gel frames. So just sort of you, you made that mental connection that you saw that and it just made you believe that that's what, what was up there. Same thing with, um, I think the moving light soft lights were like Mac 600s. I did the same thing. I just put octagonal frames onto all the Mac 600s. So it's just that kind of connection of a way to hide the stuff like that. When we did the arena slash stadium sequence, uh, I found 12 of the last working VL2Cs that were around. It took me a, quite a while to find them. And I think it was, you know, I went back to Very Light. I think it was LT found them. And it was a country Western act. I do not remember who it was and their LD. I apologize, I don't remember. But their, his LD had some like in a truck in, in the back. And they had to come with their own tech. Just to get 12 of them up and working was quite a feat. But I placed them when we were doing the arena and the stadium sequence, I placed them on the amplifiers and the drum riser and out front so that they would be in all the shots. And if you go back and look at any of those videos from the day, it's everywhere. Go look at Warrant, uh, what was their big song? Um, Heaven. They're, they're just swinging. It's, it's so funny. It's a ballad. And there's just these VL2Cs just swinging all through the video and stuff. Also in the arena, I did a back wall of all pars. And that was a absolute tribute to Motley Crue 1987. And I think it's the Girls, Girls, Girls video that at the end, you just see a little bit of it going, crew, crew, crew in the lights. <laughs> and then actually when we did, I think it, it's on Don't Stop Believing," and Tom was doing a guitar solo, and his name is Stacy Jacks in the movie. So I made it say Jacks, the same way it said crew. And I made sure I pointed it out to the director that he got it into the movie. The back wall, I think it was 144 pars. But again, it, it was I put scrollers on them because we were going to do multiple numbers. And then um, the scrollers all had octagonal gel frames on them. And then I did other things like on the drum riser, had all these louvers, and I put ACLs in the bottom, and it was a complete tribute to Van Halen 1982 tour. It doesn't seem like you had the same kind of completely melded relationship with the guys on Rock of Ages as you did on Nine. How was the relationship different, and how did you deal with the fact that maybe they didn't quite understand what you were doing as well as Rob did? Yeah, I, I mean, well, a really big part of it, again, it goes back to that thing. If the DP can't capture it, then it doesn't matter what it looks like, how good it is. So I would say that the way that that stuff was lit was much more straightforward like you're doing a rock show, and then having the ability on the day to pull things back as necessary to capture them with the camera. But that, that was a show where we didn't do tech rehearsals and all that kind of stuff. I, I worked with the, uh, it's the AD who makes the schedule to make sure that we had turnaround time and I had programming time between numbers. So I could have a couple of, a couple of them in the can and then they would come in and we would maybe shoot a number a day. But it was really, I would just show it to the DP either a couple of days before or the day of, show them what I had come up with. And then same with the director, Adam Shankman came and wanted to see the first couple numbers. And then he sort of was like, I think he got this handled and he trusted me after that. And then, um, you know, just have at it really long days. And, um, but that's, that's the biggest thing is that you can have the control. I mean, I've had it, you know, you've been with me on things like Tim McGraw and stuff where we're shooting it and you have to have that kind of control to be able to pull things back so the camera can capture them. 
And like on a film, you know, they start off shooting the big wide shot, then they go in, they go in, they go in closer, then they turn it around. And now when you turn it around, what was your backlight, your front light? What was your front lights now the backlight? All those levels have to change. So you, so you really need to be super organized. It's the programmer who, who really has to keep that all together. You have to have great people with you to, to do this kind of stuff on the fly. And there is zero patience. When you're there on the day, all of these movies, I mean, Nine was an $80 million movie and, and Rock of Ages was a $75 million movie. Nobody wants to wait. So the other thing, I, I guess I would say along those lines too, that very different thinking, in Nine, they wanted to shoot it in order. And that, that was for Daniel Day-Lewis. He, he wanted it to be shot in order. It makes total sense. But schedules don't always work that you can do that. On a film, if you have an actor, you essentially hire that actor for two weeks, let's say. So you have to get that actor's all, you have to have them shot out in those two weeks. Otherwise, they're not hanging around waiting in Fort Lauderdale for, for your next number to come up. They're, they're off to another film, or they may be in Europe or, or whatever. So their schedules are, that part of it's very intense. And on something like Rock of Ages, in the finale, all the actors, all the characters are in Don't Stop Believing. That happens in the stadium. So it was like probably a month and a half before we were shooting that sequence that we were shooting out Alec Baldwin and, and Russell Brand. So I had to decide what that was going to look like in the stadium a month earlier. And then we actually shot their part of the stadium. We were in the parking lot of the club in Fort Lauderdale. And we set up some risers and they brought in extras. And it, But to make them look like they're in the arena watching Don't Stop Believing that we're going to shoot a month from now, I had to decide, and then we used those colors to reflect onto them, and that kind of stuff is like, you, you really got to kind of have it together. You got to work really closely with the DP and the, um, the gaffer. One, one of the things on, on Rock of Ages was that they came in with a bunch of style guides and said, you know, this is sort of what we want it to look like. And I said, I sat there and I looked at the style guides and I said, oh yeah, that's, that's Motley Crue 1987, and that's you know, so-and-so, and they were like, you know, how, how did you know all that stuff? And I said, and that's, again, I just said, look, I'm, I'm a student of this stuff. I brought pictures to the table of, of tours that I liked. And so it was great that I was able to sort of pay tribute to some of the people that influenced me, you know, like that first uh, Very Light book that was out. You know, there's lots of great pictures of, of tours and stuff back then. And... Um, when they would say to me something like, well, how do you know that? And I just say, you know, dude, where were you in the 80s? You know, how do you not know Motley Crue or Poison or Journey or Warrant or Night Ranger? And when we were doing um, Pour Some Sugar on Me, which is Tom Cruise's big number, and we had rehearsed it and rehearsed it, and the day before we were going to shoot it, we, Tom wanted to do it like one more time. And in walks Def Leppard. Oh, my gosh. Now, they had... <laughs> opened the tour like the night before. We, we were in Fort Lauderdale is where we were shooting it. And they had like opened the tour the night before in Palm Beach or something like that. And they were, you know, they had obviously given permission to the movie because their music's not in the Broadway show, but they had given permission to the to use it in the movie. So they came and it was great. It was, once again, it was me and the music supervisor, Adam Shankman, the director, and Def Leppard. And there's Tom on stage and he does his number. And they were, they were just, they were floored. And I got like, to hey, it sounds it sounds much better than when we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I got to I got to talk to them, and um, I said, hey, I was I'm a big fan of Jonathan Smeaton. I had seen one of their tours that they did later that Jonathan Smeaton had designed, and Faye McFannin. Uh, I had actually focused one of his tours that was the Pour Some Sugar on Me. You know, in that big era. They were, they were really cool. They were like, wow, how do you know those guys? And again, I said, look, I'm a student of this era. The, the, I know who all these guys are, and I, I'm fans of, of these guys. This is what made me do what I'm doing and stuff. So it was really cool to pay tribute to some, some of these guys have become my friends. It was an honor to be able to say, hey, you influenced me with this, and now I got to put your thing up on, on film, even though I took credit for it. That, I mean, that's great, you know, and I know back then it wasn't quite as easy to find out who did stuff as it is now. Right. I mean, you can't, you know, I mean, now you can go look online, you can find the lighting right. plot, you can find out not just the lighting designer, but the programmer and the and the lighting director and follow spot operators they traveled with. Yeah. If you wanted to know in 1983 who was lighting something, what did you do? Uh, usually at the show, I kind of bug somebody till they tell me. 
it was kind of that simple. And then eventually I got get to be, have friends in the business and once in a while there'd be articles. I'm not quite sure how I knew that was Faye McFannin that did, I think that stuff would be in like Lighting Dimensions or Theater Crafts once in a while, certainly Lighting Dimensions. I mean, I, I yeah, no, that was, it was in Lighting Dimensions. I mean, I remember getting those in when I was still in college and stuff like that and I poured over every word of every article and I used to love there was light plots in there um, I, I didn't know how far back light dimensions went I didn't either yeah. Yeah, well I think I, I don't know I mean I remember being in college and stuff and having a, a subscription and I just I poured over every word the ads as well you know a real funny a, a quick side was um, uh, Josh Alamy from Roscoe asked me about doing an ad and he, he said we're going to redo some of the GAM ads from the 80s and I said, oh, my favorite one was GAM 140. I, I wrote to him an email. I said, my favorite one was GAM 140. It was Jeff Ravitz at the Greek Theater. I think it was like a Ringo Starr thing. He had on a gray jacket. And he, he emailed me back and was like, I don't know how you knew all that. And then he emailed me a picture. But I, I, I'm a student of it. I, you know, I, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And I loved finding out about the people. It, it, was, it was digging. It was a lot harder. It was a lot harder then. You're, you're right. But, I mean, I remember looking at the light plot that was, I think it was like Bruce Springsteen Tunnel of Love, and it was a hand-drawn light plot that was in Lighting Dimensions. I, I kind of wish they would do more of that stuff. I, I know it gets a little bit tricky here and there, but um, I, I think for young people, just seeing that stuff and just realizing also it's not all this magical stuff that just sort of happens. People do really hard work, and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of coordination and, and all that kind of stuff. So... You're absolutely right. Are you familiar with the Lighting Archive? Yes. I was just about to bring that yeah. up. Yeah. You know, so that's a case where Beverly Emmons and I believe Richard Pillborough is also involved? Yeah. Uh, yes. I've been on the website a couple of times. It's not It's not it's that not extensive fully yet. developed. Yeah. yeah. But it should be there. It's, it's getting, there's, there's more stuff all the time. Yeah. I, I don't think that there's big secrets to be hidden per se. You know, I, I just, I, th I think that information is, like, it was a big influence to me. You know, I, I, I just went through all of that stuff with like a, a microscope. I know, uh, reading Lighting Dimensions in high school, you know, I would go like, well, okay, so there's the plot, but but this doesn't t really tell me anything. How other they than cued or exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, there was this sort of like, but, you know, there's so much information that's not there. And how do you find that out? Right. And I know in your case, you sat down with design. I mean, you know, you told me that you learned to call follow spots by... Absolutely. Well, that was Dave Davidian, uh, who, again, like the arena thing that I did um, in Rock of Ages, uh, the, the big wall of lights. If you look in the Very Light book, there's a picture of a Bon Jovi tour. I'm going to say it was maybe like 1987 or something like that. And the way that there's these sticks of trust hanging down, that was, that was totally Dave. So that was my tribute to him. But, you know, you asked me how to meet people. I mean, I was banging steel on Monsters of Rock at Giant Stadium. And he was the lighting designer. And, uh, and I just worked my way up and said hello. Got him to give me his phone number. You know, this is way before nobody had email and all of that kind of stuff. But I just stayed in touch. So every time he would come through the garden or the Meadowlands, um, I would absolutely go. And he would let me sit in front of house and he'd give me a headset. So what I would do is, of course, with the microphone off, everything he called, I called it. And so I just mimicked everything that he did with my mic off. But that was really how I learned how to call follow spots. And so if you said to me, you know, let's go do a one-off and there's 16 follow spots, I know I can go do it right now. And it was, you know, great people like that, that, uh, you know, Jeff Ravitz became a really good friend. I met Jeff the same way. You know, it was on some, I can't remember the exact, I mean, I might have met him like in a bathroom or something. I don't remember. But I stayed in touch with him. Jeff's become a really good friend. We have traded off gigs once in a while. But more importantly, I can call him or he can call me and say, what should we charge for this gig? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, that kind of stuff that just doesn't exist as a freelancer. You know, it's really hard to have those kinds of people. Um, and I really value Jeff's friendship a lot. You know, there's a lot of people. I, um, John Broderick has also become a really great friend who's Metallica's longtime lighting designer. And I think I met him probably the same way. He brings a whole different school to the, th to the table. It's really great. I, last summer at our house out east, I had John and Ken Billington. You know, my wife makes really funny jokes about listening to lighting designers talk. I like and, the way that you just threw that out there. Oh, our house out east. Well, hey, everyone's got one of those. Well, we can talk about how I got the house out east. It had nothing to do with show business. But, oh. um, 
but I, I, I love the cross-pollination of the business. And that's, look, I've always wanted to do this, and I've always wanted to do all these elements from, from day one. I mean, I remember being in college, and, and it was like, you know, where do you see yourself in 20 years, or what do you want to be doing? And I know I said Broadway, the Joffrey Ballet, and the Rolling Stones. Now, you know, it didn't quite work out exactly all that way, but I've always wanted to Well, you're not that far it. off. Well, and, and truthfully, some of that comes from Jules, Jules Fisher. Um, I mean, I did a paper about him when I was in college. As soon as I found out that he did Broadway and Kiss, the Rolling Stones, and David Bowie, I was like, that's, that's, that's the be. person I want to emulate. And also, I mean, I've, I've gotten to know Jules very well o- over many years. And um, one of a kind. Would you say that was more of a thing for the folks back then? Because, I mean, you look at Beverly Emmons, who was lighting ballets, lighting modern dance, lighting uh, Broadway, and also lighting David Byrne and the Talking Heads. Right. Was there a little more cross-pollination back then of of those people at that level? Well, I I think one of the things that's changed, something I said earlier, there's a lot more really good lighting designers now. So I think that the... um, you know, when I asked Jules, I was like, well, how did, how did you get involved with Kiss or David Bowie or something like that? And he said, they called me. You know, so I think that the idea of a concert lighting designer just didn't exist. There was a few people out there. I think the only way I knew about Bill, Bill McManus, who lit Kiss, was there was like an ad for, I think, the bulb or something. And it was Paul Stanley and an ad for a bulb. And there's like a quote from Bill McManus about how hard they work and that these you know, pars last, have many longer hours. And the thing about something like KISS was they actively seeked out people like Jules Fisher. Jules always says he gave them their look, but they were doing their own cross-pollination, you know, as was David Bowie. And, and that's, that's what appealed to me. I mean, my cousin took me to go see KISS at Madison Square Garden, December 15th, 1977. And I remember being there, I was in junior high school and somebody hit a button blinded 20,000 people or 15,000 people, and they all stood up and cheered. And I was like, I want to be the guy who hits that button. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the first part of our interview with Mike Baldessari. Come back and check us out for the second half on our next episode. Thank you to Mike. Check him out on the web at mikebaldessari.com or mikeomatic.com. Thanks to my co-host, Carrie Wood. You can find her on the web at carriewoodld.com. This has been the Casting Light Podcast, a production of Casting Light Incorporated. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Merrick. Thanks for listening, and have a good show.